0: Is This For Credits? The NZATE Podcast. Hello there, Philly. Episode 8.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a number, isn't it?
0: It's a number, and because we're nearing the end of the term, that's about as good as you're going to get from us, isn't it?
1: That's a thing that you said just then.
0: We had a great time talking to Jack Remiel Cottrell, who's our guest this week, about his flash fiction. I realise... I started calling it fast fiction because I was thinking fast fashion.
1: Ah, I wondered where that came from. I And that was my first question. What is, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know. I only asked that question so that I'd feel smart, like being like, oh, I've, I've heard about fast fiction. I, I'm so literary. And yes. then turns out we were making it all up.
0: <laughs> I literally made it up. And then I set you up because you asked <laughs> the question. I'm <laughs> oh, well. So sorry.
1: It's not the first time. um I've said the wrong thing or, you know, not known something. Believe it or not, Chris, I know that might come as a surprise to you.
0: Might be the first time in my recall.
1: Oh, that's very flattering.
0: I enjoyed the conversation with Jack because he was so frank about everything. We covered a lot of territory and he not only had quite a lot to share that I think teachers need to hear, but also... When it came to his fiction, it's just so perfect for the kind of work we're often doing in the classroom.
1: Yeah, it was on the money. It was really cool. And do you know, the next day I did this activity in class where I said, you've got 150 word counts. I'm giving you 10 minutes only. I want you to write a letter of complaint Um, and it was kind of following his IRD Mm -hmm. uh, flash fiction fast fiction sorry it's it's fast fiction now but anyway it was the best activity that I've done all year and some Mm. of the learners who I have found really challenging to engage absolutely nailed it and I saw thinking of this one student in particular who had this vocabulary that I've never seen in a year Mm. even student it was just unbelievable.
0: I'm definitely going to go down this line. I really think that constraints enable and I do it in filmmaking as well. So I might say to them, okay, you're going to make a film. You've got 10 minutes. It's got to have this, 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 and this, and be on the theme of regret. See you in 10 minutes. And instead of that laborious planning for six months and then executing it and then basically the whole group falls apart and the thing they hand in, they did in the last five minutes anyway, you just shortcut the whole thing to that five minutes and end up reflecting on it and they do another one, I find that so much more rich and interesting.
1: Mm. It means you can cover a lot of ground in a short period of time.
0: Yeah. And then when it comes to them doing the more crafted longitudinal work, they've got a history of writing that they can call on.
1: Mm. It's kind of, I guess it's like the Pomodoro technique, right? Like Our Mm. lessons at school are 100 minutes and that's that's hard to to use that time really constructively when you're moving into that full-on assessment zone. And so I'll always take the class through like a solid 25 minutes, a five-minute break where you cannot do any work. You look at your phone, you scroll through whatever rubbish Mm. you're, you know, scrolling through, um, and then move from 25 down to 20, down to 15, 10, and then Ah. we do a couple of like 10-minute sprints at the end. And everyone by the end of that 100 minutes is knackered, but they're so proud of themselves and yeah yeah
0: so is that the pomodoro technique because when i when you said it i just nodded as if i knew what you were talking about yeah just like
1: like (laughs) we did with fast fiction oh yes oh (laughs) Oh, the pomodoro yes the (laughs) tomato
0: use it all the time
1: (laughs) yeah yeah it's really good it's good good
0: pizza base pizza base
1: all about (laughs) pizza that's great
0: i mean our our periods are 50 minutes long at most and so it's quite different every period's a kind of a flash
1: yeah hold on, if yours are 50 minutes, do you want to know just what happened inside my mind? Mm. I thought that the next number, this is how tired I am at the end of the term, I thought the next number after 50 was 100. So it's like, (laughs) how can mine be so long and yours not even an hour? But then I realized that. The thing that comes after 50 is 60. Oh, my God. I was just bored even explaining that just then. (laughs) All right. Enjoy the podcast.
0: Yeah. Have a good time. (laughs) See you next time. See ya. Bye. (laughs) Welcome along to Jack Ramil Cottrell, who we're really pleased to have as a guest to this podcast because he has published this wonderful anthology of flash fiction all of which is under 300 words, which I have to say is kind of wonderful for our work in a classroom. So welcome along, Jack. How are things? Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, uh, things are going pretty well. What is flash fiction and what's the difference between flash fiction and fast fiction?
2: I have not uh, encountered the term fast fiction yet, so... uh, We made that up. Probably. Possibly that is something you made up. Flash fiction is, depending on who you ask, the maximum I've seen is 1,500 words. Um, Some people say that it's kind of between 500 and 1,500 words and anything shorter than that is micro fiction. I think that's just being, like, indulgent. So, my thing would be that uh, flash fiction kind of tops out at about seven hundred words and can go as short as about six
1: it'd be so um this is such a valuable conversation as Chris was saying for us to have because it plays so well into what we do in our classrooms when we are uh, when we have word counts that we're encouraging students to meet and it's a challenging thing teaching writing, thinking how do you teach young people to to write well and to write narrative within you know a really small word count how did you get into it
2: uh, i'll have to admit this because it's embarrassing but yeah uh, fan fiction
0: nothing embarrassing about that tell us about your fan fiction
2: like there's there's plenty of embarrassing about that mostly my 14 year old fan fiction very embarrassing
1: who did you fan out to
2: I fanned out a lot to Sherlock oh yeah Uh, so BBC Sherlock and this is one of like my favorite kind of flash fiction bits was there was this fandom challenge that kind of went around writing two 21b fics which meant you had to write a story of exactly 221 words and the last word had to start with a b and I just loved every single thing about that because everyone else is writing like massive sprawling epic and i just suck at finishing long things because i get bored very easily so i was like cool here is this thing that is so absolutely precise and i only have to pay attention for 221 words
1: your 14 year old self what platforms were you using to read and write Uh, fan fiction and are they still around or what platforms are people using now the cool kids these days
2: i don't know what the cool kids are using these days yeah Um, on the grounds that i'm not sure i was ever one and i'm definitely not one now but i was using both uh, live journal and tumblr and i know the archive of our own is pretty much the place that most people stow their fan fiction these days
0: What do you think drove you to write fan fiction? I've often thought of it as a way of re-articulating something that's from the mainstream into a form that provides representation to people who aren't often seen in that mainstream. Would you say that happened in your versions of it?
2: Definitely, um, yeah. It wasn't gay enough, (laughs) Um, so I had to fix that clearly. (laughs) I have exactly the same view. But also... It's a really easy kind of way to get into story writing because you don't have to build a character or build an entire world. You've got one, and then you just write the stories, you know, using the, the characters that people already like and using the world sometimes that's already been built, and then you just make up the story.
0: A lot of what you've said so far brings to mind this principle of enabling constraints. And I often find that's practical for us in the classroom, is by actually setting really strict parameters on students' creative output, they end up doing really interesting work because within a set of defined boundaries, which provides some security in the way you describe, they can then actually experiment more. It's almost safer to experiment. And they, as you say, have some props to lean on, which are the the kind of formalized rules of the piece of writing, as a way of getting into writing. You went from fan fiction to having your own work published. How did did that pathway look?
2: It looked kind of like, you know, one of those half, you know, crooked goat tracks that go up the side of a hill and you're not sure if it's actually a path or not. Mostly I was writing a lot in my teens and then I had a couple of years where I just didn't write very much because I thought that I didn't have any stories left in me and I was quite depressed and partly because of the fact that I felt like I didn't have any stories left. And I went to uh, two workshops uh, at the Auckland Writers' Festival, both of which were formative. One was a creativity workshop and the other was a flash fiction workshop. And I ended up being reacquainted with these tiny little stories so yeah I just started writing a lot of flash fiction and discovered that other people were writing it as well and it wasn't just something that fan fiction did occasionally and then a book emerged and then a book emerged basically that year I wrote what is called a novella in flash where you write uh, a novella which is usually a really short novella mine was but over 8,000 words, which in terms of novellas, very short. In terms of flash fiction, very long. But every chapter has to both feed into the overall narrative, but you can also pull it out of the book and it would read fine on its own. So I wrote about uh, patron saints in the 21st century and submitted it to a competition and got first runner-up that a year I got a job with Auckland cricket, which I thought was my dream job. Um, and then I discovered at the end of the season that my contract was not being renewed and it broke my heart terribly. And I went home and I cried a lot. And then I thought, well, what the hell else do I do with my life? So I went and did my master's at Auckland Uni, ended up with the manuscript that I sent to Canterbury University Press and they said so many nice things about it that I was sure the word but was coming. The word but did not come. And then they gave, like, they published a book
0: of my stuff. Could you talk about a, a bit about your writing process?
2: And first, I usually start with a weird, either a line or an idea um, or a thought that I like.
1: And do did these did they thoughts or ideas or lines sort of come to you in your sleep or is it a, a...
2: no definitely not in my sleep right. um usually when I'm walking actually I take a long walk and mutter to myself a lot um, which is why I've moved to the middle of nowhere yeah, so no, one, no one, can... one can tell great and then I'll sit down and when I'm writing really short fiction I still can't actually do it into a laptop so I handwrite anything kind of under about a thousand words. I did my undergrad in psychology and it did not surprise me to learn that you do think differently when you're writing something into a keyboard versus when you're writing something uh, by hand.
1: Can can you tell us a little bit more about that because that might just change my whole pedagogical approach?
2: I mean it's the the way that your neurological pathways fire the kind of very basic thing is that things which fire together wire together mm-hmm. so if you are thinking creatively while you handwrite, and particularly when you're young and you're learning you're learning to write stories and to think creatively if you're doing that while you're writing by hand when you're older it will be a lot more natural to write creatively when you're doing it by hand. I don't think that there's any actual inherent value in writing by hand unless you've started out and learned how to think creatively that way. And you can retrain your brain. But uh, I still find, particularly if I want to write really concise, creative fiction, that I have to do it by hand, at least at first.
1: So these um, ideas emerge to you, and you um, smash something something out.
2: I will usually write down my dumb ideas, and I write down all of the ideas, uh-huh. uh, and then I'll think, well, I have, I've got a spare hour to write five hundred or so words, three hundred words, and what. Of my list of ideas appeals to me today, and then I'll just sit down and I'll put a timer on. It was quite useful when I was doing some uh, temp work where I had to go around the floor of an office building every hour, and it only took about ten minutes. But I had to do it on the hour every hour, so it meant I only had fifteen minutes to write. So. I'd sit down and I'd write for 50 minutes because I knew that I would have to stop. As soon as I have all of the time in the world, I'm just not going to do it because I can do it later. The other option is going to the laundromat again. I just only have the time that my clothes are washing.
0: It seems like you thrive on constraints, in fact.
2: Yes, I, I have quite pronounced ADHD. So having very rigid like set parameters while my kind of top-level brain goes, no, don't want to. Uh, My little lizard brain goes, this is nice, I like this. Don't have to, you know, think too, too hard. The things are just happening.
1: Have you always known you were ADHD? Uh,
2: I wasn't diagnosed until my mid-20s, but uh, I should have been. When you found you
0: had the diagnosis, what difference did it make to you?
2: Um, It was massive. I had always thought that I was just a bit stupid. I just thought, you're, you're a smart guy who does dumb things. There's actually a story in the book, uh, which is pretty much exactly as I remember being in class and knowing I shouldn't say something just as I was saying it and being told by my teacher, you do this all the time. You know, can you try a bit harder? When I uh, actually got treatment for it, I remember was doing a graduate diploma at the time, and I was able to sit down and do a assessment. And I'd never been able to sit there and just write what I knew, ever. And I got ninety seven percent. Wow! And I just thought, I was one of it one part was like, this is great, and the other was. How much different could my life have been if this was picked up earlier? Because I'm pretty sure that, yeah, my teachers in year 12 and 13 would agree with that because uh, I think they most appreciated when I just wasn't there.
1: What do you think you learnt through having ADHD and not having been diagnosed in that time that, that has value to you now as an adult?
2: Saying the thing that's really funny is not always a great idea. Just, <laughs> And I definitely learned to ask to do something a different way, particularly if I thought that the way I wanted to do it would be more interesting. No one really figures this out when you're a teenager, but teachers aren't always interested in reading the exact same essay uh, 30 times. So asking to do it a different way, will often re- result in them going, yeah, sure. What I used to think of is like, ha, they have tricked them into letting into letting me do what I want. No, I, they've tricked me into actually doing the work. <laughs> uh, it's it that's really worked out in pretty much every aspect of my life.
0: The way you're relaying things, it appears as if you spend a lot of time in your teenage years essentially rewriting the world so that it matched up better with your own experience, whether it was the fan fiction, making gay the Sherlock story, or whether it was the classroom where you made the work suit your own needs as a learner. how's that affected you as an adult, do you think?
2: Part of it has been uh, the difficulty of realising that Actually, the workplace is not as flexible as that. But then it's also, as an adult, been like, cool. Particularly now I know more about my own brain. I'm able to almost trick myself into doing things I don't really want to do but are boring, but, you know... Adults have to. It sounds like you and Philly would get on because this this is yeah. her narrative. Mm. You just have mm. to make sure that the, the Homer in a hammock that lives inside my brain and just wants to drink beer out of a coconut has to do something before he realizes that he's actually having to do something because being an adult and having re- a reasonable uh, job and quality human relationships requires a lot of work.
1: Because I think this is really interesting and it's it's very interesting as well um, as teachers because there's so much neurodivergence in our classrooms and it's always challenging um, and very interesting thinking about how you can bend your learning and how you can set, set learning up from the get-go so that it is engaging and relevant and accessible for all of your learners. So to be speaking with someone who is neurodivergent, who who is a writer, you know, what are some of the things that are important for you as a writer with ADHD that allow you to achieve?
2: Part of it is knowing what works and what doesn't. For a while, I did succeed really well with an app, which essentially uh, matches you with someone else around the world and you go on a video call and you say hi what are you working on this hour Um, and you tell one another and then you sit down and work you basically make an appointment to have a zoom call where you will not speak to one another you will just work Um, and that was great because I feel much worse about letting someone else down than I do about lying in bed all day um, if I don't have an appointment and then I discovered that I could cancel without the numbers and I think this is very much a boy thing that we if we've got a a chance to have a list of numbers which look really good like a hundred percent attendance rate then you know we're very much focused on making sure that we've got the highest number but I discovered I could cancel without my number being affected so it kind of has become staying one step ahead of my brain so I've managed to pick a really terrible uh, occupation for someone with ADHD because you have to self-motivate all the time, organise yourself and, and make sure that you can remember your deadlines. You're also a rugby ref, is that correct? Yes. So yeah. that would be a very
0: in-the-moment kind of work that you would do. It would, yeah. it would keep you 100% occupied.
2: Yes, yeah, and it's a really good sport in terms of you do not want to not show up because you will not just be letting down your own teammates you'll be letting down everyone involved in the game.
1: Do you find that having those smaller word counts I think you've kind of alluded to this earlier but having those smaller word counts and having that strict time frame is something that supports you having a more intense and engaged um, and therefore more satisfying experience of writing? Definitely,
2: yeah. Um, the, knowing there's a time that you can stop and you, that you just have to get something done, particularly the smaller word counts and the when I'm working, writing for other websites or journals, they'll often give you a prompt. So you have to write something about this thing In this word count, it seems like it should be really confining, but it's not. It's, again, that how to trick people into accepting this wholly different thing when uh, it's actually this kind of thing that they were wanting. But, uh, like, for instance, I wrote a piece for the listener, which was on the very loose theme of the best year of of your life. Uh, And everyone else wrote about the best year of their lives, I assume. And I wrote about uh, a guy who donated memories from the best year of his life for a eternal sunshine of the spotless mind style company.
1: And these are the ideas that occur to you when you're going for a yeah. walk?
2: Speaking
0: of ideas that occur to you while you go for a walk, could we ask you to read some of your flash fiction for us?
2: Yes. This uh, is work in income gothic turns out that waiting for work and income to actually get around to your appointment is a very boring time and a very good uh space to be writing particularly if your phone is out of batteries
0: oh so this was written in that queue
2: <laughs> first draft uh, at, at work and income work and income gothic you approach the door in place of a security guard there is a sphinx she asks you a riddle You answer it correctly, but she pretends she cannot hear you. The receptionist asks for your name. She asks for your client number. She asks for your most painful childhood memory. She asks for a sliver of your soul. You wait. Your name will be called. Hours pass. Days. Years. When they call your name, you no longer recognise it. In the waiting area, you see a man drinking a beer. You see a man drinking a can of Woodstock. You see a man drinking the blood of the damned. He has very clean fingernails. A poster states, the only disability is a bad attitude. A man using a wheelchair touches the poster. Immediately, he levitates out of his chair, then begins to glow with a pulsing white light. Your caseworker asks if you are in a relationship. You start to say no. Before you can, you are suddenly in a relationship. You are the bride of an abomination whose name cannot be uttered by the human mouth. A bell rings. A column of flame erupts and engulfs the person next to you. The staff applaud in unison. You sign a form stating you understand your rights. You sign a form stating you understand your responsibilities. You sign a form stating you understand how the universe will destroy itself and then you do understand, you begin to scream. Surreal. Yeah. I love the uh,
0: second person, you know, the you. It, takes, it makes mm. it difficult to escape from it, doesn't it?
2: Much like,
0: you know, work and income. Yeah. It also has that uh, uh, overtone, that game or twister plot novel mm. overtone where you're being instructed by essentially a machine to experience mm. certain
1: things. Yeah, and I think that's the use of tense and the second person pronoun yeah. and also those sort of simple or minor sentence structures repeated. It sort of gives us this robotic quality, but it makes it impossible not to visualize what's happening in that space in front of you. And you've balanced that comedy with, with surrealism just so brilliantly in a setting that's also... Not dark, but, you know, like it's boring and mundane. And
0: And that moment of tenderness when the man in the wheelchair actually physically touches the poster, I find that quite profound.
1: Yeah, I
2: just looked at their uh, statements around disability and was like, that's nonsense. All of this is nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, I very much enjoy playing with tenses and particularly second-person, and I think there's a lot of prescriptivism in longer forms of writing that you don't quite get in flash fiction because it's a lot easier to do something weird for 500 words than to do something weird for 5,000 words. A lot of the second-person texts tend to refer to you as another character in the story.
0: I think it's something I like to mm. instruct the students to do sometimes. This must be written in the second person because I've got this preoccupation with constraints as a teacher, <laughs> which would surprise nobody. And, and I find that they do find it uh, grammatically challenging, but then they come up with these really interesting insights. Shall we read another? I'm getting eager now.
2: This is very much a light fictionalization of something that really happened to me when I was in year 12. Trying. Don't call him an idiot, she thinks. Yell the answer, but don't call him an idiot. It's alliteration, idiot. The entire class laughs. Laughs with her, laughs at Ezra, who flashes dark and looks at the floor. And she can't understand why she did it. She didn't want to embarrass him. She was just bored, just wanted to move on. Her teacher keeps her after class. She likes Miss Wheeler, likes her triple-pierced ears, so the sad look on her face is almost worse than detention. Amy, she says, there was no need to call out the way you did. Sorry, Miss, and she is sorry. She's always sorry. She was sorry even before the words left her mouth, but she said them anyway. You've done that before. I know everyone laughs, but it's not really funny, is it? She does it in all her classes, lobs a one-line grenade into the middle of the room and watches the resulting detonation. She happens to think it is pretty funny. What's not funny is the way she can't seem to stop herself, the way she never gets a moment between thinking she could do a thing and doing it. Miss Wheeler is still staring at her. No, miss, I guess not. Try a bit harder to hold it in next time, eh? And apologise to Ezra yeah, I will. Sorry again. She doesn't apologise because if she was Ezra, she wouldn't want to hear it. She also doesn't tell Miss Wheeler that she's trying as hard as she can because that will just sound like a lie the next time it happens. Every school report she's ever had says that, must try harder. And she wonders how long it will be before she's finally allowed to give up. (laughs)
0: Not the two teachers in the room
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of rendered
0: speechless Sorry
1: Yeah Yeah. (gasps) Oh man Like we know that kid Man I think I was that kid
2: Billy I think you were that kid
1: I think I was was that kid Yeah
2: I will just say to all the Miss Wheelers out there Keep liking that kid Because he might end up on a podcast Talking to you one day Yeah (laughs) Yes
1: It just sucks so much that there are so many young people who um, have suboptimal experiences in school because of factors beyond their control, Mm. you know, and it doesn't matter if you're the most charismatic, understanding, warm, whatever, teacher. You've still got 25 people in front of you and there's one person in there who you you can't reach all the time.
2: I, I will... Move on to a uh the tertiary education experience, which is way I can't l- wait. way <laughs> le- way less ter- you know is this
1: post is this post diagnosis
2: this is post diagnosis but also uh while you know that one was mostly true, this one was briefly inspired by something true vaguely. Somewhere in the diff- distance. But I want it to be true.
1: You will want it to be true.
2: Uh, this is called They Probably Play the Viola. Kyoto students. University administration has noticed higher than normal numbers of time travellers appearing this semester. The Vice-Chancellor's office would like to take this opportunity to reassure students that everything is fine. The Head of Department for Physics, Dr. Amanda Wu, is keeping us informed about the implications of time travel. She warns that students should not approach any time travel device that appears on campus. Disrupting these could maroon our visitors from the future or cause a universe-ending paradox. We want to assure students that a universe-ending time paradox is very unlikely, but in the interests of openness and transparency, you should note the possibility. Some students have taken uh, to asking time travellers for information about their upcoming exams. This is a breach of your academic integrity policy and anyone using information gleaned from the future to gain unfair advantage may be subject to disciplinary processes. We are not being complacent about the possibility of consequences from road time travellers. Sanitiser stations are available around campus and we encourage you to use them if you feel anxious about superbacteria from the future to which your immune system has no defence. Sadly, it has also come to our attention that a small number of individuals have spread rumours that the time travellers visit the music department because one or more music students will commit horrific acts of genocide in the future. These rumours are hurtful. And go against our university's commitment to fostering an inclusive community. Hiwaka Ekenoa, hashtag be kind. If you are worried about paradoxes, superbacteria, deadly futuristic weaponry, or the possibility you will be subjugated by a brutal dictatorship originating from a cabal of musicians at this university, the student counseling service is always available to you. Yours sincerely, Professor R. Serling, Vice Chancellor.
1: Were you bored in a lecture?
2: I kept getting emails from the university and I'm just like, yeah, this is dumb. these They're could all be ridiculous. way more
1: exciting if it was about time travel. It would be way
2: more exciting <laughs> if it was about time travel. So in that sense, there's another angle
0: into writing, I feel, which is to, it's almost like writing as a response to found things, like the emails coming into your inbox. And again, I feel like you've adopted the style. It's almost like you adopt the style of the thing in front of you at any given moment, like, for example, that email, but then add your take to it.
2: Yep. I think uh, it's one of the great ways of making fun of something is to uh, pretend to be it. Mm. And everything is made better with time travel. Everything.
0: Um, Well, one of the things I love about that is that I have endless numbers of students that want to write about time travel. And I've working on trying to rein them in. So this is quite a good option because the other thing is that you find often, don't you, Philly, the year nine, year 10 student who really loves writing is in that uncontrolled state. So they will write 20,000 words.
1: And then I woke up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's either everyone dies or it was all just a dream. It's like, oh, how convenient. The story is finished. Have you found
2: my, like, 13-year-old live journal? Also trying to think of weird ways to use time travel if it's already happening. Um, One of the authors who is my, like one of my brain candy authors is John Scalzi and his very short fiction often deals with aliens, but they're aliens that have been on Earth for a little while. So there is a story of his which is an employee brochure for staff at a supermarket on how to deal with these aliens because the the teenage aliens are causing trouble in different ways. And uh, it's very much the kind of, well, we're not gonna write about the alien invasion. We're gonna write about, you know, the aliens who move in next door.
0: Which has some excellent um, allegorical value, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you have advice for teachers? Now you're a writer, you've been to school, What would you say to teachers if you had a platform to do so, such as this one?
2: Actually, two things. One may be slightly controversial. On the sidewalk, bleeding was written in 1953. Stop using it.
1: Lot more you can add to that Mm -hmm. list.
2: Uh, There are, there's a lot more that you can do. But also, I started writing because I wanted to tell stories about my favorite characters. So, comics and all of these things that are. Not really considered traditionally proper writing, there is still a great way to get into writing. Um, And they're fun. If your student wants to write about Fortnite, let them write about Fortnite. Um, Eventually, they'll end up writing about the Hunger Games and Battle Royale and all of the other things that are just Fortnite but literary.
1: Kilda. Thanks so much for that. That was wonderful. Such awesome food for thought.
0: You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.